This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. On the 31st of December, it will be 10 years since the FCA's RDR reforms came into effect. These reforms fundamentally changed the way the UK advice market operates, banning commissions and requiring much higher levels of advisor qualifications. Now, 10 years on from the reforms, we look back at what spurred the changes and how they were first received, and we ask what has improved and what challenges remain. To answer those questions, we are joined by the FCA's David Geel, one of the architects of the reforms and currently Director of Retail Banking, and also the FCA's Director of Consumer Investments, Therese Chambers, who will be discussing where we are today. I am Jack Gilbert, Deputy Editor of NMA, and I'm joined by Charles Wormsley, the Editor of NMA. Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, David, I want to start with uh, the beginnings of RDR. Uh, it's been in place for 10 years, but the FSA, as it was then, came up with a plan in 2006. So it was a long time in the making. What initially drove the changes? Well, in 2006, we had a number of concerns about the advice market and the way it was operating. We were seeing challenges around consumer trust in the market, a potential misalignment of incentives between advisors and their customers, and frankly, too many instances of poor advice. So back in 2006, we took the decision to do a fundamental review, and that sparked off a huge amount of work, working with the industry, working with consumer groups, and involving research to come up with a, a more of a problem statement of what did we think the real issues were in the market, and then to develop what we felt were the solutions to those problems. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about what those poor outcomes were and what you found were causing them. Well, the poor outcomes usually resulted in either not enough people taking advice, uh, buying products that they didn't necessarily need or weren't suitable for, for, for them or for their individual circumstances, but quite often that takes a long time to come through. So what you would see, it would be many years in the future. If you think about a pension, for example, many years in the future before you can actually see those problems manifest and people realize that they may have either been missold, misadvised, or, or, or in some way done the wrong thing for them. So that, that was most fundamental of the issues. But I think there were a number of drivers. So at that time, advisors were remunerated mostly by commissions from product providers. So the product provider was setting the the amount of the remuneration, uh, the nature of it, and the customer didn't have much say in that, if any at all. In many cases, they weren't even aware, even when they were told what, what, what was going on. So, so that was a fundamental issue. We also felt that the standards of advice were too low. We felt that actually many advisors were not qualified to a high enough standard. Now, some were. Uh, some had actually invested in their own careers and their own professionalism, which which was terrific but actually many hadn't taken that extra step. So that was really what we wanted to address was to, to look at those, those uh, that alignment of incentives, to look at the level of capability of the advice, um, advice market and the professionalism of the advice market, um, and to also look at the clarity that was provided to consumers on the services they were getting. So that came together into a package of measures. Yeah. Uh, and so yesterday, Charles and I were actually at the memorial service for Ian Taylor, mm. the former CEO of Transact, who sadly died a few weeks ago. Mm. Now, Ian launched um, Transact, I think, back in t 1999. It was the first rap platform in the UK, um, which, you know, 
prevented advisors from using commission from getting commission mm. um on on the funds they were selling um many people saw people like ian and, and the guys leading the the rap platform movement in the early 2000s as quite influential in the development of rgr i mean how, how influential were the platforms in in this this trend the, the transfer towards the rgr model well there were, there were there were a huge number of influences we sought advice and input from people right across the market, from product providers, from advisors, from platforms, mm. and uh, m most importantly, from consumers and consumer groups as well. So there were a huge number of influences, but what drove us was to make the market right for consumers. Um, alongside that, what we wanted to do was ensure that the market was more sustainable. Uh, and, and a market that's providing the right services for the right people in the right way it is naturally more sustainable. So. Did the platforms have an influence? Absolutely. Do people like like Ian uh, have a, an influence and a lot to say that helped to influence and shape that debate? Of course. Um, and we're very grateful to, to everyone who engaged. And obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning, it, it's it, sort of the gestation of the idea came in 2006. It wasn't implemented for another six years. And during that time, you went over changes of government. So you, when I think Tony Blair was in prime minister, when those ideas first came up, um, then you have the 2010 election. And in between all of that, the uh, 2008 financial crisis, uh, what was happening behind the scenes uh, as governments changed and the system crashed during these years uh, to the RDR reforms? Well, I, I wouldn't say that that had too much of an impact on the RDR reforms because... So you felt so that the governments, the changing government didn't have an impact, that they were kind of, everyone was supported? No, the, the FSA as was and the FCA now are an independent regulator. Now, obviously, we work closely with Treasury and others, um, but, but the driver for the reforms was our assessment of the market. Uh, the driver for the changes in terms of the rules that we brought in was what we consider to be the solutions to those problems. So um, this wasn't something that was driven by the Treasury or other parts of government. It was something that was an FCA, FSA into FCA initiative. What I would say is that we kept the market under review and you'll be aware of the financial advice market review, which which have took place later, I think it was around 2015. And that was a joint exercise between the government, the regulators and the industry really to look at where there ways to, to make the market work even better for consumers. So that was something that we did jointly, but it was a joint exercise rather than being steered in a particular way by any one body. Uh, looking back at stories at the time on, on the anime website, um, you know, we've, we've seen that there's been many people at the time um, were predicting a huge kind of advice gap, mass exodus of advisors. Uh, there was a report from Deloitte saying 5 million will be left without advice. Mm. Um, and, and obviously looking at comments as well, there was obviously quite a lot of negativity around some of the reforms in terms of the implications for the advice community. Mm. Just wondering how much pushback you were getting from certain elements of guess the advisors and and the industry as a whole so this this was a very significant effort on behalf of advisors and there were some significant changes but but that was the purpose of it that, that that was what we expected so we did get pushback of course we did people who were trying to do their day jobs and had to sit additional exams that was a challenge for them there was some skepticism around whether customers would be prepared to pay for advice when it was so uh, transparent in terms of the cost that was there and so these these things came together to actually come up with a fair amount of resistance. But we shouldn't also underestimate the amount of support that was there as well. So if we look at many people uh, were already members of professional bodies, 
taking steps towards uh, chartered status, for example, and many people already had exam qualifications beyond what, what we were asking for. We did see an initial drop in the number of advisors. It wasn't huge. We did see an initial drop. It was mainly amongst bank advisors rather than uh, independents. And that, that number actually trended back up again uh, more recently. And I'm sure Therese can talk about the, the state of the market as it stands today. Um, but but I, I think it would be unfair to characterize it as, as all pushback. There was a lot of support for the reforms as well. Uh, I think talking to people after the event, when they've been through the exercise of upgrading their qualifications, uh, many found it a very positive exercise in terms of actually investing in themselves, investing in their clients, and actually finding new ways that they could help their clients because they, they were able to explore new avenues. So uh, I, I think overall, I, I would say it, you know, there was a mix of responses, but, but I think now we would look back and say it was a positive experience. I actually found an article, an interview get, you gave with uh, with City back in 2012, David, uh, with Michelle Abrego, mm. um, <laughs> and obviously on RGR, and you said uh, at the time, I'm not personally convinced the advice gap, as some would like to call it, will exist, will be that large. What we need to do is give RDR a chance, we'll monitor what works. If things don't work and we find that it doesn't get, have the desired effect in certain places over a period of time, then, then we'll address it. So... I mean, just do, do you think now, looking back, that RDR has had the desired effect? And to ask you that question then, Therese, I want you to come in as well. Okay, so so I would say, yes. I mean, now, we can never declare victory. There is always more to do, whether that's around the standards of advice, whether it's around thinking about consumer needs. But So there is always more that can be done, and there's always more that can be done to promote the, the value of advice, which we do think is a very good thing. Uh, I would say I think the, the lift in professionalism as I understand it, has resulted in a better quality of advice. The number of advisors has gone up again, and the capacity that advisors have has increased through things like the, the use of technology. Um, and so I, I certainly think that people who are looking for advice can find it. And there are other me methods being developed, such as automated advice and other things that Therese can talk about, uh, where people have got opportunities to, to engage in different ways. So I think there's more to do, but I, I, I'm pleased with the effect that form reforms have had. So you were right back in 2012. <laughs> um, well, I mean, as I say, there is always more to do, but I think we've taken some very positive steps in that direction. And Therese? Yeah, so I think uh, I think the, um, the RDR has actually transformed the advice market. Um, it's not perfect. There is definitely more to do. But if you look at the, the change, you know, the move away from commission payments towards the charging of transparent fees, that's fundamentally changed the incentive structure um, in this market, whereas previously um, advisors were incentivized to sell something, um, now they are incentivized to give good advice, um, and that is a fundamental change. Uh, I would also see the huge increase in professionalism as a really fundamental change. Um, and what we've seen is that um, customer satisfaction has gone up, um, the levels of complaints have gone down. Um, that there is an exception there, um, and the exception is around advice on defined benefit pension transfers, where um, there have been a number of issues, um, as is well known. But on those two counts, um, RDR has absolutely done what it's set out to do. Um, in terms of the access to advice, we have seen improvement there. Um, it's not as, as large as we would ideally have liked to see. Um, and you'll be aware that we've um, very recently issued some further um, consultation proposals, which are designed at really opening up um, the uh, financial advice um, for consumers. You have simpler needs, more straightforward needs, 
who just need to get into the world of investing. Um, but, you know, there has been an increase um, in take up of advice. Um, the robo advisors are in there, relatively small um, market share, but, you know, they're, they're there, they have a presence. Um, it's growing slowly. I think we'd like to get on to those new proposals in a moment. But before then, you just mentioned robo advice there, and David mentioned automated advice. Um, do you think that has been a success? It, it feels like it's still quite a small market. Um, so, but so yeah, do you think that's taken off at all? Or it is definitely taking off. Yeah. Um, but our consumer research shows that most consumers who are new to investing, um, they prefer the human touch. Mm. Um, they they feel um, they will feel more confident um, in engaging with the world of investing if they have an actual human being to speak to. Um, but there's no doubt that you know the the the, um, the automated advice platforms are there. Um, that they're, they're doing business. It's a small amount of business re- relative to the rest of the market. But there's also a lot of investment um, in in these uh, in these automated um, providers. And there's there's a lot of keenness that they should expand. Um, it, it's about getting over that initial confidence. If we can get give people the confidence to take that first step into the world of investing. Then I think um, that is that is potentially a game changer um, for you know for people going forward. I mean, in just in terms of the market as well today, I think we've got thirty six thousand human advisors in the market. Um, I think I'm sure that you know your comments around the improvement in professionalism and standards and the quality of advice since RDR would be widely acknowledged and accepted by the advisor community. And the thirty six thousand advisors today are you know hugely qualified, so many of them are chartered, giving holistic financial planning. Um, but I think something that many people would accept though is that those financial advisors, the 36,000, are predominantly focused on wealthy clients with quite large pension assets, um, particularly around retirement. I think that post-pension freedoms in particular, there was probably a move towards that pension, um, the high kind of pension um, asset client bank. Um, would you agree with that characterization that advisors now predominantly the human advisors are focused on the wealthier the wealthier clients and particularly for pension assets? Uh, I I do agree with that characterization actually I think I think that is true. Um, uh, many advice firms actually have a sort of minimum pot yeah um, a, a minimum pot requirement yeah. that they um, that they in, in order to make it worthwhile for them um, and that's because you know um, in order to undertake a holistic financial plan for a client. That's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work to do that properly, um, and it, it you know it carries quite a lot of overhead, um, and that's why we're bringing forward proposals for um, a core investment advice regime, which does not involve a holistic financial plan that looks at every aspect of someone's um, financial health and well-being, but is really targeted on getting people to take that first step into the world of investment, where we want to reduce the regulatory overhead. Um, make it easier for firms to give that type of advice um, and make it easier for consumers to to step in. Who do you think will be providing that advice? Do you think it will be banks returning? Do you foresee stuff like that coming in? I think banks will be interested. Um, I think um, advice firms will be interested, particularly I think the larger vertically integrated advice firms will be interested. We've already done some um, some industry engagement in advance of um, setting out our proposals because there's obviously no point in making these proposals if nobody's going to step in and give the advice Um, and the the feedback we've had so far is definitely that there is interest in this but people obviously need to engage with the detail of our proposals 
Um, that's why we're consulting, so that they can come back to us on how we can make this workable for consumers and for and for advisors. And that interest is coming from providers and banks and insurers. It's coming across the board. You mentioned something interesting to me earlier, Jack, that someone was telling you that the environment in general has changed in that front. Well, I think that, yeah, I guess I guess someone, I did have a conversation before this and, and we were talking about banks and advice. And I guess if you look back to 2012 and maybe David come on this as well, is that, you know, you had people going into your branch, you, you know, you, you cash your check and then there'd be maybe a financial advisor there who maybe sell you a life policy or an investment or whatever it was. But the world of banking is very different today. You know, now certainly our generation and others are focused on, you know, online banking. You know, you rarely go into your branch. So I'm just wondering what your thought, both your thoughts are on that kind of side of things now that banks are predominantly digital services, whether or not that they that will be a, a barrier to them being, you know, getting back into the advice market. Uh, well, I think banks are increasingly digital. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't characterize them quite as exclusively digital at the moment. And a lot of that digitization is still reliant on some face-to-face -face interaction. So a number of banks will engage with you through perhaps online technology in a branch or, or, or at home. And so actually one of the things that the pandemic has, has brought forward at a much faster pace is that interaction through mobile devices, for example, or, or through um, likes of Zoom Teams, whatever, whatever platform people use. So video calls are much more, much more prevalent for general banking needs. And I think it is fair to say that the, the sector is looking at how can they utilize some of that to provide a more holistic service to their customers. So, so I think it is fair to say that the, that the banks would generally be interested in are there ways of providing advice that they can do safely, that they can do as a service to their customers um, in a positive way. And I think that is quite different to where we were previously in terms of the way they're thinking about it, the services they may be providing and the channels they'll be using to do it. But I think I would agree with them. There's some real opportunity there that banks know a huge amount about their customers. And if they can operate at scale to provide a service cheaply, efficiently, uh, that is to the right standards, I, I think that's, that's a positive all round. So uh, I, I think there's some very exciting potential developments there. Yes, and we're already seeing some banks that, that are currently operating successful advice models. Um, and that, that's what we're looking to build. That's part of what we're looking to build on here. I mean, just on the simplified advice point, though, so obviously this is focused at ICES, cash ICES, particularly with people about £10,000, I think it was in the consultation paper. But, I mean, I think that doesn't fix the at-retirement gap around not enough people getting financial planning at-retirement at um, in terms of the, the, the reach <clears throat> of the market. You know, you're focusing now on ISA advice and trying to encourage that market, I guess, and get more people access will you then look towards the at retirement advice and and making that a, a, a more uh the, increasing the scale of the advice that's on offer there yes so i think we have to we have to start we have to encourage the novice investors yeah. into the world of investment because at the moment we see too many people locking their money up in bank accounts where over time the value will just deteriorate very very significantly indeed sitting in cash sitting in cash yeah so um it's it's not in people's interest um to have their money sitting in cash so that's what we're targeting with this particular set of proposals um is to encourage those novice investors to unlock their money um obviously where they've got their rainy day funds and they're they're it, it's they're fine to lock it away 
for a five or 10 year period. And then over time to get into the rhythm of using their ISA allowance each year to, um, you know, it continue to invest and just to start to build that habit of investing. Um, and as people do that over time, they will A, be building up their pot um, so that they will have a, a greater source of funds, um, which, which will in turn drive a, a desire for greater advice. But they will also become just more confident um, generally and, um, and will be thinking more about their retirement. There's a limit to what we can do at the moment within the current legislative framework. Um, and the proposals that we've put out are, are designed to do as much as we can. Um, with the framework the, of advice and what is advice advice guidance. guidance. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, uh, so this, this is designed to push us as far as we can in terms of reducing the regulatory burden around advice. Um, but we're very keen actually to undertake a holistic review of the boundary between advice and guidance. And it's through that that we will get into those questions about how can we um, best um, ensure that there's good um, retirement advice provision for all, not just for the most wealthy. And I mean, to, to go to that point on the most wealthy, um, in 2020, uh, I think the stats showed around 8% of UK adults had received financial advice. Uh, why do you think this number isn't higher? And is it as simple as saying it is just the charges? It's it's hard to understand, actually, because we've also seen, I think, 11% um, of UK adults hold high-risk investments mm. that have been, I know, it's terrifying. Well, these people are getting advice. That's they're not getting advice. These are being marketed directly to them. Yeah. It's a direct consumer model. Um, and through that, 11% of consumers have invested in high-risk investments, including crypto. Um, yeah, deep intake of breath at that moment. So I think there's more to it than just the charges. There's also the accessibility. How do I find advice? How do I find an advisor? How can I trust an advisor? So that there's a much wider piece. I think it's much wider than the charges. I think it's much wider than um, the current uh, advice firm focus on, on the wealthier um, contingent. It's a complicated do you think it's partly because of the supply of advisors? Because, I mean, again, when I spoke to people before this podcast, you know, some people said to me that a, a huge problem we've got post-RDR is that we're just not getting the recruitment that, that, that we need to, to, solve, to, 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 to provide the provision, the right provision of retirement advice, particularly post-pension freedoms. Do, yeah. so do you think that it's a sort of supply issue partly? I mean, you know, there's a lot of advisors who are qualified to advise. There's over 6,000 advice firms in the market. So instinctively, that doesn't feel like a supply problem. Um, but I think these are exactly the types of issues we're going to need to explore as we move into that holistic review of the advice guidance boundary. And if we look at where we are today, you know, 10 years on from RDR, you know, obviously RDR was it created to um, reduce or remove investment bias when advisors were picking funds um as well as improved professionalism um but one of the things that i did speak to some people about um before this was um what the challenges and the issues that still remain in the market in terms of that that bias something that is is clear is that you are getting a lot of advice consolidators buying up small advice firms now in some of the models of those advice consolidators consolidators are paying more for assets which are then transferred onto their own platform and funds so the the ifa who's selling up is getting a higher payment if later after they retire or if the firm is sold, that their assets are moved across to the consolidators' models, investment models and platform. Um, and surely this is still an element of, of bias that's still still there in the market. And is this something the FCA is, is thinking about? 
Well, something that we're really looking forward to actually is July of next year when the consumer duty goes live um, in our rule book because that imposes a whole fresh set of really stringent requirements on firms, which at their heart say you've got to put the best interest of your customer first. Um, and they, these are exactly the types of situations that we will want to be examining through the lens of the consumer duty and say, is, is that a foreseeable harm that you're causing to your consumer, to your customer, but through that, that pattern? And if it is, um, then we'll need to do something about it. How are we being forced in that? So uh, there's a very lively conversation going on um, internally at the FCA to, um, to identify how we want to target um, the application of the consumer duty. We have to give firms a chance. Yeah. We have to give firms a chance to get it right. This is a big deal. It's a it's a game changer in terms of raising standards across the board, not just in the um, advice industry, but across all aspects of financial services. So, you know, we're not going to um, crack down and open investigations on the 1st of August. Um, we will give people some time to get it right. But if people are not making the right efforts um, to get it right, if they're just ignoring it, um, then they will be in our sights pretty early. Do you, do you expect firms to act before rather than afterwards? So we're already having conversations with firms that say, when the consumer duty comes in, I don't think this is going to be okay, do you? So we're already having those conversations. Um, and, you know, firms have just um, completed their implementation plans. So yep. for them, the consumer duty is, is very front of mind as well. And there's, there's no point engaging in a business practice right now that you're going to have to change significantly um, in, you know, seven months' time. Is this as significant as RDR was? or is? So uh, it's that's a really good question. I, th I think it's really significant. Uh, you know, RDR focuses on one section of the market. Yeah, this is across the board. This is across the board. It affects everybody. Um, and for me to have um, a rule that says you must not do something that will cause foreseeable harm to retail consumers is incredibly powerful. I think I would just add, I mean, RDR was targeted. It was targeted at some, some specific actions. This is requiring firms to take a step back, have a think about what are the best outcomes for their consumers in the round. Uh, so, so it is a very significant change. I think you can say that it will be broader and it's much more ongoing. Whereas if you think the RDR changes were you get yourself qualified, that that's step one. And actually that's a big chunk you've got passed. You change your charging structure. You, you speak to your existing clients about what that looks like. You've got past that. You, yes, you have to continue, but it, but it's but it's you've got over the biggest hurdle. I think consumer duty, as Therese says, is a very significant change, and firms will need to be thinking about it through all aspects of their activities, both existing and new. So it, it is a very significant change for firms who are trying to do the right thing for their customers, um, and if they're already doing the right things, then actually some of that change may be. Um, less significant than for others who really do need to take that step back and look at look at everything and potentially make some quite significant changes. And I mean, this might be a linked point, but we, we spoke a bit earlier about reputation of advice being a reason for sort of not getting as much uptake potentially and sort of this idea that maybe uh, people feel that they can't you know, find an advisor they want to work with. What do you think uh, the advice community could do to improve that? Um, we, it's something we see every year. We see a lot of advisors going out there doing great things in financial education, doing loads of qualifications or really helping their local community, but it still seems there is a barrier. Um, is there anything more you think that 
this profession and community could do? Uh, that's a really good question. It's a really difficult question. Yes. So there's always more that can be done in terms of outreach into local communities, maybe tapping into, uh, you know, we know financial education is a huge problem. Um, tapping into sixth form colleges, you know, getting those teenagers thinking about it, university students who obviously don't have two pennies to rub together, but hopefully at some point in their lives will. And, you know, to just get people tuned in, there's there's a lot that can be done in terms of outreach and education. Um, and that is a really good way of just building trust. Yeah. Um, and that that's the future we want to see. We want to see a future where consumers um, trust uh, the financial advice community and know that that's a safe place to go to for really high quality advice. I mean, one area as well I noticed that was highlighted by the FCA recently was um, diversity and uh, encouragement across every regulated firm. The specific letter to advice CEOs that was brought up. Do you think it's the community, you know, RDR has obviously advanced the profession in one way, but do you think there's other things outside of regulations that firms need to be doing like that to sort of develop into a much you know, wider community? Yes. So, I, you know, the, the goal for firms should be to reflect the communities that they serve. Yeah. Um, because that is the way that they can give the best possible advice. Um, and it's also the way that they can just be the best that they can be, um, frankly, um, rather than um, being restricted to a very narrow demographic, which is why, um, as a regulator, we take uh, DNI really seriously because that is a way of raising standards. Yeah. But David, uh, in a past life, I believe that you, before the regulator, before the FSA, you were actually an advisor yourself. Um, just wanted to finish by asking you how different do you think it is today compared to the days when, very recent days when you were a financial advisor? Uh, well, it's not very recent days. This was over 20 years ago. 20 years so, ago. Uh, uh, so uh, I think the, I mean, I'm, so I'm not close to the advice market at the present time. I mean, I, I'm working, as you know, in retail banking. Um, however, I would reflect that the everything I see, everything I hear, talking to Therese and her colleagues, I do see some very significant differences. I mean, clearly I look at things like the reports that come out of the RDR because it's interesting to me. Um, I think what we have seen is a real uptick in the professionalism. I think we've seen uh, the, the reputation. I know we talk about the ways it can improve further, but it is actually improving. You don't hear so much about the, the negativity as perhaps we did 10 years ago. And I think there is a real place for advisors, particularly at the moment in a cost of living crisis, to work with their clients to help them navigate these challenges. So uh, I, I, I think it is very different. I think there will always still be challenges, but actually I think there's been quite a significant uplift uh, in positivity across the piece. I think that's a, a really nice note to, to finish on. I see other final, final questions. I mean, the only thing I wanted to ask maybe to finish is looking back, would you have done anything differently at all? Would there be any kind of change, any different approach, different consultation you would have put out? You wouldn't have done the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In 10 years, today. No, I, I think we continue to learn and evolve. Yeah. So I think the RDR was the right step at the right time. But I think it's absolutely right that we continue that. We don't just sit on RDR and say, that's it, job done. I think the steps that Teresa's talked about around thinking now that okay how can we make advice more accessible to everyone as opposed to people who perhaps got a pot of a certain size you know, that that's hugely important and that's got to be the next step so we should keep evolving as we go i think the rdr was the right step to take at the right time and i think we should uh 
collectively, and I mean the advisors themselves should be very pleased with actually a, a number of the things that have happened as a result of that uh, and the efforts that they made. Uh, but as I say, none of us should rest on our laurels. I think there's there's more to do. David, Therese, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you for having thank us. You. And thank you everyone for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with us about this episode, we're on Twitter at New Model Advisor or feel free to get in contact with me. I'm Jay Gilbert at cityui.co.uk. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next week. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 